I'd like that. If you've got your Bibles, open to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy was a product of a legacy of steadfast faithfulness. He saw and experienced it first in his home with his grandmother and his mother. And then he saw and experienced it in a different way as he spent time with his mentor, Paul. And he experienced it in still another way when he was out serving and ministering on his own. But even with a solid history of faith, every day, Timothy still had to make his own choices to keep the faith. And that's the same for all of us. Just like we do, Timothy had to say no and resist the efforts of a spirit of timidity trying to suppress, steal, or extinguish the use of his giftings. And he had to say no and resist the spirit of shame trying to silence his voice or to make him care too much about what other people think. In order to keep his sincere faith alive and growing, Timothy, like us, would have had to literally and figuratively guard and preserve his faith to keep it from escaping or from being stolen or quenched. Paul knew that struggle that Timothy was facing was real. He'd been through it himself. He knew the place that he had sent Timothy. And so as a spark to Timothy's faith, Paul re-reminded him in every reader's sense about the calling connected to salvation. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, the first part of it. God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Without a doubt, we are saved by grace, through faith, without works. It's a gift of God, so when no one can boast. But that's not the end of the story. The rest of the story is that we've also been saved unto good works. Good works the Father prepares in advance for us to do with Him every day. Good works that come from our post-salvation obedience to an application of God's written and rhema words. And a vital part of continuing to work out our salvation and the perfecting holiness process that we're all called to is following Jesus' example of a not-my-will but yours be done lifestyle. True born-again salvation comes with a personal calling out by name to live a holy life. A holy life filled with good and beautiful words and deeds that point people towards God because of what they witness and experience taking place in and through our lives. This holy life that we've been called to is not arrived at through the religiosity of meticulously keeping an external to-do list. Instead, this holy life emerges as a result of us actively participating in all day, every day, fellowship and ministry to God and with God. This holy life is the product of our internal alignment with God and his ways. And then it works its way out of us externally. Living out this holy life is not a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all deal. There are many ways to live out and express a holy life. For instance, John the Baptist, who was literally filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb when pregnant Mary showed up to pregnant Elizabeth and uh, then then the, the Holy Spirit fell on John in the womb. So he came out of the womb filled with the Holy Spirit. And he also had a Nazarite vow in his life. And so the way John the Baptist walked out his holy life He wore some pretty strange clothes. He ate some pretty strange things. And he didn't associate with people much. He was isolated and away from people. That's how John lived his holy life. And then Jesus showed up and became public. 
And Jesus lived it completely different than John. In a completely different way. So different, in fact, that John got a little bit freaked out by it. And John sent his disciples one time to Jesus because Jesus wasn't doing what John did. And Jesus wasn't acting as John expected Jesus to act. And so he sent his disciples and they asked Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? I love Jesus' answer. He said, go back and tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. And tell him this, blessed is the one who's not offended on account of me. So, so John the Baptist said the way he was living his holy life, I think all of us would agree Jesus was living a holy life, right? Paul lived a holy life that looked different than either one of those guys. His journey was completely different than theirs. And his protege, Timothy, had a different experience than that. The common thread in all their lives was an openly surrendered obedience to God. The common thread in all their lives is an openly surrendered obedience to God. And that's what the world needs to see in each of us today. Not trying to be like somebody else, but being the fullest expression of who God has created us to be. Each one of us is called to wholeheartedly live out our expression of this holy life as we faithfully minister the grace of God in its various ways which is part of what it means when I say, let's go be church at the end of most of our services. Ephesians 3, 10 to 12 says, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he has accomplished in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Intriguingly, the target audience of the revelation of the manifold wisdom of God is a clear witness to the heavenly realms, to the heavenly realms, which is one more divine point of emphasis that the most important things taking place right now are not really about us wrestling with flesh and blood and earthly things, no matter how much it seems like that sometimes. There's something profound. God wants rulers, authorities, powers, and principalities in the heavenly realms to see happening on earth through the demonstrations and testimony of our holy lives. At the same time, God's own purpose and grace also involves some clear intentions for us here on earth. Jesus said it this way, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples. Baptizing and teaching are all things that God intends all of us to do with him. And by his grace, we are all qualified and equipped to do it. More about that in a minute. I often talk about grace as the empowering presence of God that enables us to be who we're created to be so that we can do what we're created to do. Well, there's something hidden in the word Paul used here for purpose in the phrase, his own purpose and grace. In Greek, this purpose is a specific reference to the showbread that was part of the pattern of worship God gave to Moses and that continued into the days of Solomon's temple. Exodus 25, 30 says, Put the bread of the presence, the showbread, on this table to be before me at all times. 
So God required there to be showbread, bread to tell forth, bread to declare, on display, in their place of worship, and before him at all times. I think our lives are a current expression of that Old Testament showbread. And one application of this Old Testament imagery speaks to our unique role to continually show forth and tell and declare Jesus' life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his victorious resurrection from the dead. And to do that until Jesus comes back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the Spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus, come. The reality is that like the showbread, our lives are constantly on display before God at all times. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And in his highest purposes for our lives, we would all joyfully live with the conscious awareness that God is with us all the time. That he never leaves us, he never forsakes us, he sees everything that we're doing. We would live with the joy of that, not like, "Uh uh-oh, God's watching, but yes, God is watching. Yes, thankfully, God is watching. He's seeing this. He's with me. He's not too busy paying attention to something else. His eye is on me, living with that joy. But sometimes what we tend to do is we check in and out of God's presence. Maybe we'll check in on Sunday, but on Monday, we're another thing. Or sometimes we do one step into it, and then we take two steps back, and one step in. I, I think uh, sometimes we do the hokey pokey. You put the right foot in and shake it out and try it out, you know. Then you put the left foot in. Just get all yourself in there. Just be all the way into the kingdom and live in his presence constantly. He, there's nothing you can hide from anyway, so don't try. Don't waste the time or energy. He sees it all anyway. He actually saw it before it happened. He, he, he knows the end from the beginning. And he wants us to live in his presence, constantly on display. The showbread was also called the bread of the presence, and it was laid out in the open air for a full week, and that bread did not get stale, even though it was out in the presence of the Lord for a full week. And I want to say there is still something amazingly refreshing and sustaining about choosing to dwell in the presence of the Lord. Something that just does for us when we just keep that fire going inside of us in a conscious awareness of his presence. Fresh loaves of showbread replace the old loaves on the table every Sabbath. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's a God-designed exercise, a weekly exercise of out with the old and in with the new. It's also a direct connection to God's love for exchanges, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The old loaves were eaten in the holy place as a special fellowship meal between God and the priests. It's a picture of what we get to experience when we take communion, whenever we gather and worship together. 1 Peter 2.9 also says we are a chosen people and a royal priesthood. So we are all invited and eligible and qualified to share in this meal with the Lord. And there were 12 loaves of showbread, one for each tribe, which is a good reminder of God's desire for the whole body of Christ to be valued, represented, and on display before him at all times. In Romans 12, 5, it says, In Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. There are detailed instructions for making showbread in the book of Leviticus, and and what it uh, takes to make the showbread, I think there are ramifications for our lives today. This unleavened matzah bread was made out of fine flour from a whole kernel crushed to powder. 
Uh, when, when our kids were younger and at the house, we made a lot of wheat bread back in the day. And everybody had their jobs. You know, somebody was grinding up the wheat and somebody doing all of that. Uh, but, you, you know, we had these big old, big old buckets of wheat. You know, you pour it in and it grinds. But it, it starts as a whole kernel, but that's not how it comes out. It comes out crushed, right? It's a, it comes out in a completely different form. And, you know, life can be like that sometimes. But there's a purpose connected to the crushing that can come from trials and testings and temptations and suffering. And none of that is ever without purpose. And then the showbread was uniquely shaped and formed so it would remain whole and unbroken during and after baking. And I just want to say that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And we're created with a destiny and a purpose so that we can be whole. The showbread was baked on the day before the Sabbath and the intensified heat changed it into a new form. Which got me thinking, what if when life intensifies, either suddenly or slowly over time, what if when life intensifies, rather than, what in the world is going on here, God, and complaining about it, what if we got our head wrapped around the idea that maybe, just maybe, maybe we're in the oven being made into a fresh loaf of showbread, right? Maybe that's what God's doing uh, in our lives. God who saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul loved this church in Ephesus. He spent three years there himself, and now he'd asked Timothy to settle in there and pastor the work. And in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance to the riches of God's grace. Here in this second letter to Timothy, Paul reminded Timothy of the fullness of what Jesus accomplished. Jesus, our Savior, has destroyed death. The Amplified says, annulled death and made it of no effect. The King James says, abolished death. The Passion says, dismantled death, obliterating all its effects on our lives. And in Greek, this destroyed means to be rendered entirely idle and useless. So once we've given our lives to Jesus, we never, ever, ever have to fear death again. Once we've given our life to Jesus, we never, ever, ever have to fear death again. Man, a couple of years ago, the fear of death was loosed across the earth. And there were a lot of choices and a lot of decisions made because people were afraid to die. No, every breath that we have in life is precious. We're not in a hurry to die. But we don't need to be afraid of dying. Our last breath here is just our next breath there. It's just as simple as that because of what Jesus has done. But Jesus didn't just come to destroy death. Jesus brought life. God's purpose and plan has always revolved around life. Jesus said he came that we might have life, abundant and to the full. He even declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. And just before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. 
And that same day, Jesus asked an important question that still echoes into our day. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Chapter 10 of the shack, it says, Jesus speaking, I came to give you life, real life, my life. We will come and live our life inside of you so that you will begin to see with our eyes and hear with our ears and touch with our hands and think like we do. But we'll never force that union on you. If you want to do your own thing, have at it. Time is on our side. And I love the line from the movie Braveheart where William Wallace says, all men die, few really live. Really living only happens in Jesus. Our Savior Christ Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality. The Amplified says life and immunity from eternal death. In the Greek, immortality is incorruptibility, unending existence. In 1 Corinthians 15, how are the dead raised is asked and answered. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness and raised in power. It's sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. The perishable must be clothed with the imperishable and mortal with immortality, and then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And of this gospel, verse 11, and of this gospel... I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have been entrusted to him for that day. Now, we know Paul's conversion story. He was a religious zealot, aggressively persecuting the early Christian community until the day he got literally knocked off his high horse and blinded. And that experience with Jesus changed everything. Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the apostle who ended up writing a majority of what we now call our New Testament. In Paul's case, his fall led to his call, which then became an appointment. Now, we tend to think of appointed as kind of a of a nice thing, like being given a special assignment or a position. I've been appointed to do this thing. But the Greek word Paul used actually means to be placed in a passive horizontal position, which is actually the word picture for being dead. Although Paul was given a very specific commission during those three days of blindness, his appointment into that role was still based on Paul's free will choice to lay his life down. For God's purposes, God's will, and God's timing. And as it turned out, that required another 10 years in the desert before it got started in earnest. Because God is not a respecter of persons, we all have to die to what we think that we're called and anointed and appointed to do so that we can discover and live out our calling in accordance with God's purpose, God's will, God's timing, and God's anointing. It may be somewhat surprising, like Paul, we are all called by God himself to be a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. Every person in this room is called to be a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. 
A herald is a public crier of divine truth, especially the gospel. You know what we call that today? Evangelism. Evangelism. And we're all called to be part of that. And you don't have to have a, uh, a locked-in. You might have a locked-in method that you want to share with people, but really it's just sharing the love and the light of Jesus everywhere we go. That's evangelism. Being kind to people, being good to people, telling them about Jesus, praying for them, uh, encouraging them. That is what a herald does. An apostle is a sent one. A sent one, a delegate, specifically an ambassador of the gospel, which sounds a whole lot like go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching to me. And the word that Paul used for teacher is just the basic word for instructor. And instructing can happen in a variety of ways, advising, coaching, guiding, lecturing, mentoring, training. I think the best teachers share what they have learned and share with their students, and they teach it in a way that the students just don't come out walking going, whoa, that person knows everything. The students come out going, wow, I love that. I love how much they love that. I love uh, that they're so fascinated, and it creates a love in the heart of the student to learn the same thing. I remember, I remember one of my history teachers from, from uh, uh, high school, Coach Brauner, and, and he loved history. And because of the way he taught history, something about history woke up in me. And I've loved it ever since with Coach Bronner. Uh, Dr. Workman at Baylor loved C.S. Lewis. And what I learned in his class then transferred into my life through many years. And then we ended up reading it with the kids. And now they're reading it to their kids. I mean, it's a going thing because he loved it and it instilled in us. When we were homeschooling our kids and raising our kids, one of the things that's so important to us is not just to teach the material, but for them to become people who loved to learn. Because we need to be learning the rest of our lives. And good teachers instill that in their students. I also think uh, the best teaching happens when the teacher doesn't do it from this high up place speaking down. But instead more like Jesus. Like let's go together. Let's walk together. Just come with me. Walk with me. Let me show you the things I've learned. Let's learn this together. Let's be, I'm, you know, to be a teacher really you just have to be one chapter ahead. Just one chapter ahead of the people that you're teaching. You know. Uh, and and it, with even just that much, then you can lead other people. But it's like the humility to be vulnerable. Hey, I'm still learning this too. This is as exciting to me as what it is when I'm sharing you. It's not like I've got this figured out. We're still figuring this out together. Within the larger Christian community in regards to apostles and teachers, I know that there are capital A apostles and capital T teachers who function as part of the five-fold ministry Paul wrote about in his letter to the Ephesians, where he said, God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. But I'm fully convinced that there's still plenty of room for a bunch of little A apostles, sent ones, and little T teachers in the work of preparing and equipping the body of Christ. And in fact, what I believe is the only way a person ever becomes a capital A apostle or a capital T teacher is by faithfully serving and using their gifts and callings before they ever get recognized or given a specific title. It's not taking another title and say, this is what I am. No, it's just doing the work. It's just being who you are. It's walking out and, and investing the gifts and the talents that you have in the ways that they are. And then after a while, you get doing that long enough and people go, hey, you're that. But it's just being who we're created to be before we have a title. When Paul wrote, that is why I'm suffering as I am, he gave us another reminder that none of us are ever exempt from suffering. Even when we're faithfully walking out our calling for a holy life. And that's sometimes where we get tripped up. You know, when we're 
veering off to the right or the left and we're not pursuing the Lord with all our heart and stuff happens, you know, I knew it. I wasn't walking with the Lord. But when we're living out our life to the very best of our ability and we're doing, I mean, we're right on it with God and we're doing everything we can and we're walking with him and he's walking with us and then hard stuff comes. Sometimes that can trip us up. But when suffering comes our way, Paul's words to Timothy can help us deal a crushing blow to a spirit of shame. I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. The word Paul used for believed is more than just a mental assent. It's a belief that adheres to, trusts in, and relies on God. It's a confidence and faith in God that makes us stick to God like Velcro. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he is able to guard means that God will guard, keep, keep watch over, preserve, and prevent from escaping whatever we entrust to him to take responsibility for. Whatever we entrust to him to care for, he'll guard, keep, keep watch over, preserve, and prevent from escaping. Whatever we entrust to him to sustain, God will guard, keep, keep watch over, preserve, and prevent from escaping. And that being true, why wouldn't we entrust everything and all of us to him? Verse 13, what you heard from me keep is the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ. The Amplified says, hold fast and follow the pattern of wholesome and sound teaching which you've heard from me. Now today, there is plenty of teaching readily accessible and available to us. But listen, it's not all sound teaching. So let's not be sheeple. Let's not be sheeple. Check the fruit of what you're hearing and reading as well as the fruit of the lives of those who are teaching it. And I want to encourage you to trust the witness of your spirit. Beware of anything that creates anxiety or a check inside you. Don't ignore that. Just because someone else really, really loves a teaching doesn't mean you have to really, really love that same teaching. You know, we have have different tastes in foods, you know. You read a review online about, man, this place is amazing and the food is great. You go there and it's like, this was terrible, you know. (laughs) Or you go there and it's like, this is great. Those reviews were exactly right. I mean, you find out, you get to decide for yourself. And I want to just emphasize that. We don't ignore what happens in your spirit. I mean, somebody, sometimes it's people you really love and respect and they say, you should do this and you should read this and you should listen to this and this is great. And then you look at it and read it and something inside you goes, hmm, I don't know. It doesn't mean anything about them. Difference not wrong. Difference just different. And so there's permission to be different. But I want to speak to you that it is important for us to trust our spirit. And when something comes up like that, process your thought. Process your reaction to the Holy Spirit. Why is this causing me to check? Or why am I running into this? Or uh, what, what's happening with that? Uh, Cindy was telling me yesterday when Elizabeth was speaking at uh, uh, the ladies' gathering, women's gathering, she said she'd grown up in, in the church tradition she'd grown up in. People would just repeat the phrase, praise the Lord. Um, it's just part of uh, reciting it. But one day in her car, she said, praise the Lord. And boom, the presence of the Lord fell on her life, you know. And, you know, so it's like, so then does that mean every single day that you should say, praise the Lord and the presence of God will fall on your life? No, not necessarily. But it might. It happened for her. And if it happened for her, it could happen to you. But it's like, test that. It, it's not, again, it's not cookie cutters. One size fits all. God is training us and teaching us, and his spirit is at work, and his spirit is the one who guides us into all truth. 
And so it's a good spiritual discipline to ask for and then learn to trust the Holy Spirit's opinion about the issue. You know, lay it before him. And if he says, run with that, run with that. And he says, mm, maybe not now. Let it be, maybe not now. And again, that doesn't cast any dispersion on somebody else that's running with it. But it might not just be for you. Well, it could be. Trust the Holy Spirit. He'll tell you. I love how the Passion translates this verse. Allow the healing words that you've heard from me to live in you. That's what's so powerful, the healing words. You know, when you read this book, when you read the Bible and you read it and the words seem to be coming against you, that's, you're reading it from the wrong spot. These words are for us. These are healing words. Allow the healing words to live inside of us. Sometimes they bring correction. Sometimes they bring discipline. But they're healing words. And make the healing words that you've heard from me, Paul said, a model for life. We, we live out healing words. We use and bless other people with the word instead of using it against them. Make it a model for life as your faith and your love for the anointing one grows even more. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, so it matters who and what we're listening to and learning from as we go through each day. Having a growing faith and love for God is essential, so don't settle. Don't settle. However much you know about God right now, I mean, you may be in the richest, sweetest spot you've ever been with God, but I'm going to tell you this, there's more. There's still more. Amen. Or you may be in the driest spot you've ever been. Well, don't give up. There's more. Herb read the verse just a minute ago, but if you're, all we have to do is we're thirsty is come. If we're thirsty, come, and he will satisfy that thirst. One other thing that I've learned, I, I grew up in the church, I was in the Baptist church from, my, you know, from the time in the womb, uh, and then in 1986, 85-86, we started experiencing the Holy Spirit, and everything kind of changed uh, in just radical different ways. But one of the things that I've learned about spirit-filled living that I didn't know when I wasn't living a spirit-filled life is that um, many times growing in faith involves welcoming the experience before I have the vocabulary to explain it. Growing in faith requires me to welcome the experience before I had the vocabulary to explain it. More the way I grew up, if I couldn't explain or to give you a verse and all that kind of stuff, is like I'm staying away from that. But what I've found is that as we walk with the Spirit, there are many times where you walk into something, you're not, you're not even sure, I don't even know if this is God or not. I mean, uh, Cindy and I were in a home group. Uh, we were just engaged and we're going to this home group at this Spirit-filled Baptist church and we drive 30 minutes across town to be in that group. And on the way back, many times I was processing out loud with her, like, I don't know if I believe that, or that was kind of weird, or that was kind of strange. And, you know, just process. But we kept going week after week after week. And, and eventually it was like, I've got to have what they've got. They've got something that I don't have. I've got to find that. I need more of that in my life. And I've just experienced that many, many times through my life. Rather than, um, well, uh, if I see it, I'll believe it. Sometimes you've got to believe it. Do you see, you walk into a situation and God does things that offend our minds to reveal our hearts. But if we're going to grow in faith, we have to endure that process. And so sometimes you just got to experience it. And then on the other side of it, it's like, wow, what was that? What was that that just happened? And let the Holy Spirit talk and teach you through all of that. Verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Who lives in us. Without any exceptions, God has made a unique deposit of His grace and His gifts in each one of us. We need to believe that. 
We need to own that. We need to value and esteem what has been entrusted to our stewardship. And we need to put what we've been given into practice. I've already said it. God will entrust uh, and guard whatever we entrust. God will guard what we entrust to him. But we're also called to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. It's not a use it or lose it deal because God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. But they can get stale if we don't use them. They can lose their edge if we don't use them. Guarding doesn't mean hiding them, burying them in the ground. Actually, the way you guard your gifts is you put them to use. You put them into practice. You give them away and watch God fill them back up again. That's the way you guard their life and their existence to keep happening. The Amplified says, guard and keep with the greatest care the precious an excellently adapted truth which has been entrusted to you. I love that. The excellently adapted truth that is entrusted to you. Every one of us has an excellently adapted truth that has been entrusted to us. Now, there are some common streams that flow through that, that we have in common, but it is not, again, it's not cookie cutter, one size fits all. This holy life is meant for us to live it out as God leads us, guides us, and directs us by the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the real key. By the help of the Holy Spirit. It's yet another reminder of the need to keep maturing in our relationship with the Holy Spirit in every part of our everyday living. Once we've surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And this is that Greek word, lives to inhabit. It's the combination of the words in a fixed position and to occupy the house. Same word Paul used when he wrote earlier in this chapter telling Timothy, I'm persuaded that your sincere faith is still living in you. But it creates the same question about that. Living in us. How much room are we giving the Holy Spirit to live, dwell, and occupy our house? When we're saved, we give our lives to Christ, we get the Holy Spirit. Don't keep him in the foyer. All right, well, I'll I'll open up the living room. I'll let him him come in. I'll let him get off the porch into the house. I'll let him come in. I'll even invite him into the kitchen. And then you get walking a little further. Well, you know, maybe I'll let him look at one of the better. But stay out of the closet. There's still some stuff in the closet. No, he's already seen it already. Just let him occupy the whole house. Let him occupy the whole house. We've been saved and called to a holy life. And in order to be and do that to the fullest, an active, ongoing personal relationship with the Holy Spirit is mandatory. 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who's in you? Whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a great price. Therefore, honor and glorify God with your body. Earlier this week, our daughter Faith was out and about in Toronto. I don't know if she was walking to school or walking home. She's got a 30-minute walk to school, 30-minute walking home. She's also... Uh, training with another group of teachers. They're going to run a half marathon in Rome coming up in March. So she's been taking some long runs. I don't know. I just know she was out in Tirana and she saw and she took a picture of an olive tree that was almost hidden at the head of an alleyway. And uh, she saw that, got that picture, and that led to this. I'll never see an olive tree the same again. I can't pretend I haven't been to Gethsemane. Among the olive trees under which you wept, son of man, I can't ignore your suffering love laid so evidently bare that night as you prayed, accepting the coming crushing 
of your own body given for our redemption. Lord, Lord, keep me awake with you. Keep me hungry for the bread of your presence. Keep me burning like a lamp with your oil. Keep me awake with you. And should I slumber, Lord, forgive me. Restore me. Remake me. Teach me to pray like you pray. Father, your will and your way. That girl, something so powerful the way the Lord speaks to her. The opening of this second letter is what my Bible headlines as encouragement to be faithful. With his father heart for his son in the faith, Paul gave some key reminders and practical advice to Timothy as well to every reader and hearer since. And his reminders and advice sound a lot like the crafted prayer Paul included in the middle of the letter he had written to the Ephesian church that Timothy was now pastoring a few years later. And let me read that over us as we finish. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to absolutely know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for your word. Again, I just want to thank you for this letter written almost 2,000 years ago from a, a spiritual mentor to a spiritual son. This is what Timothy needed to hear at the time. Oh, Lord, it's still so living and active today things we need to hear, things we need to learn from. And I thank you that you are teaching us little by little, piece by piece. And I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, keep stirring in us uh, a desire to be aligned with your purpose and grace for our lives and not to settle for anything less than becoming the fullest expression of who you've called and created us to be. And we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity we have to live that out We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.